Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, continuity in a scary world. And I wanted to be real sure that we could do what we're doing for people, you know, in the immediate future. And there are threats to that, and the biggest of them is cybersecurity. Data is for more than putting in a portal. As government, we inherently, whether purposely or, or not purposely, uh, have a ton of data at our disposal. And oftentimes, we're not leveraging it to the full extent that we can. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world and learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. Montana's Commerce Department is the first agency in the state to achieve 100% digitization. Governor Greg Gianforte pushed agencies to hit the all-digital benchmark by the end of the 2023 fiscal year. The, quote, culture of customer service in the state will help save money and better serve residents, the governor says. New York State is giving local governments access to an endpoint detection program from CrowdStrike as part of the state's new Cyber Operations Center. The $30 million program gives county governments, as well as the cities of Albany, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and Yonkers, free access to the program. Colorado expects to add 150 new connected vehicles to the state's roadways. The state's Department of Transportation awarded a contract to Unix Traffic to provide 150 roadside devices over the next year that will receive data and send messages to connected vehicles. You can read these stories and more at statescoop.com. You'll also find links in today's show notes. Peter Mantos is New Mexico's new chief information officer. Mantos, a private sector IT leader and former state IT contractor, says his primary focus off the bat is cyber and assisting with the state's broadband expansion. Mantos tells Statescoop's Colin Wood about how his background sets him up to lead the state's IT organization. I go back decades, uh, you know, as a computer programmer for various companies and uh, developed my own consultancy. Uh, I've been very interested in strategy. I've been uh, very interested in, you know, even from an education perspective, uh, bridging the gap between the art of business management and the science of information technology. So, uh, back in the day, they didn't have a management of technology degree or uh, anything like that. So I ended up getting my uh, master's in both computer science and an MBA in finance, uh, which wasn't, you know, the, the correct way to go for managing IT organizations, but uh, I covered most of it. Hmm. So... So I also worked for some uh, large companies, uh, including Siemens, Digital Equipment Corporation, and Intel. And uh, over at Intel, I worked both as a contractor, a software developer, as well as, uh, you know, they hired me on to manage a small, uh, they call it automation, an automation team. I uh, worked over at Intel for about a decade or so. And uh, I've also worked for uh, state agencies uh, from the private sector as a, as a contractor, uh, both as a uh, software developer and as a project manager. I am a certified PMP 
And uh, the reason I get into that was I, even on my own projects, uh, I made some classic mistakes. For example, uh, a project that suffered scope creep. Uh, you know, I, I realized that it was a project and I hadn't been treating it as one. So uh, I decided to get a little more formal about that and, and ended up making that my profession. Hmm. Right. So was your work with state agencies while in the private sector, did that figure into your decision to, to take this role? Is government something that you were, have been attracted to for some reason? Why, uh, why, the, why the jump to state government? Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, being uh, in uh, with, you know, three different agencies uh, uh, relatively recently in my career, um, I came to learn that there's a lot to be done, that uh, there are uh, issues and that state government, like some other industries, don't really look too far outside of, uh, you know, what they know and, and where their comfort and don't realize that some other techniques and options are available to them to, to uh, work more productively. Uh, just as a couple of examples, one is quality management. Gee, you know, uh, manufacturing uh, companies use that uh, all the time and they, uh, they measure so that they can improve. And, uh, you know, you don't see a lot of that in state agencies. To be fair, they they do, you know, they have performance metrics, but not everybody has, for example, document control. Uh, uh, another example is uh, agile, agile software development and, and software version control. Uh, these are used in uh, private industry quite a bit and, you know, work especially well in software development and the Project Management Institute has uh, suggested that Agile be part of all project management. Well, uh, not everybody's using it. And uh, these are some of the best practices in private industry that the state can adopt. Right. All right. Well, speaking of uh, being busy and having there, there being lots to do, uh, it looks like the priorities as laid out by the state's uh, IT strategic plan has put a lot on your plate. So if I uh, have this right, broadband is at the top of that list, followed by cyber and some other things. So <laughs> that is correct. You, you nailed speak? it. All right. Good. Could you uh, could you speak to uh, some of those priorities? Let's start sure. with broadband. What's uh, what should people expect coming up? Well, uh, more people should expect more access. You may be aware that this is a national effort and uh, there are some uh, initiatives out there, uh, NTIA and, and BEAD that uh, propose to spend a lot of money primarily for infrastructure. The feds are interested in spending this money once. Uh, 
And as you know, technology changes quite a bit. If you're going to keep up, you know, you're getting a new computer every five years or so. So, you know, spending money once on technology might not seem like a, a great strategy, but uh, they are steering us towards infrastructure. For example, one of the, you know, state of the art means that we have right now uh, for getting high speed uh, broadband internet backbone uh, out there is fiber uh, cable, fiber optics. So while that's good infrastructure, we don't have much that's better at the moment. And, you know, putting some of that in the ground, it's going to last more than five years and we should be able to take good advantage of it. Unfortunately, that's not a solution for some of our rural communities. Uh, and New Mexico happens to be uh, one of the most rural, you know, we're spread out. Uh, we've got a population of, uh, I'll say only 2 million, but uh, we also happen to be, I don't know, something around the sixth uh, largest state by area. So, you know, put those two together and you'll see we've got some people out in the, not just the boonies, but uh, underserved populations. We have a lot of tri tribes, uh, Pueblo tribes, and, uh, you know, we, part of the Navajo Nation, which spans uh, three different states. Uh, and, you know, the, the Hopi, et cetera. And these people have been historically denied access to something that your New Yorker would take for granted. We've got uh, people out in some of our communities, you know, COVID brought this out. Uh, parents would have to drive their kids to, you know, the, to the mall where they sat in the parking lot to do their homework. And we want to see that changed. Right. Well, uh, according to the state's broadband office, there are nearly 200,000 locations in New Mexico that don't have Internet access. So uh, when you have Internet access, it's it's hard to imagine that there are places that don't. But apparently still lots of places that don't. Uh, well, you know, you 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 refer to the places, but it's a combination of uh, places and people and you know, besides just digital equity, right? Somebody, yeah, gee, have you, you know, have you binge watched the latest whatever? You know, no, they can't have that conversation. But more importantly, uh, these broadband is a big driver for education. It's a big driver for economic development. You know, why should, uh, you know, uh, megastore.com, you know, moved to Podunk, New Mexico, uh, when, you know, they, they can't offer broadband. Well, the, uh, you know, with this, they'll be able to, and people from the small places will be able to participate, you know, just as we are, uh, through telecommunications, uh, you know, they'll be able to participate in call centers, et cetera. 
Uh, it'll bring uh, people to the jobs and it'll bring jobs to the people. Right. Well, uh, you know, like Spider-Man says, with greater uh, connectivity comes greater uh, cyber threats. I think that's what he says. Um, yeah, well, that's so, true, too. And yeah. so, you know, as we discuss priorities and, and you mentioned the strategic plan, I, uh, we're actually renewing our strategic plan, but uh, you've got the priorities right. For me, I was inclined to put cybersecurity in front of broadband. And the reason being that uh, broadband represents doing more for more people. And I wanted to be real sure that we could do what we're doing for people, you know, in the immediate future. And there are threats to that. And the, the biggest of them is cybersecurity. Uh, it is a scary thing. You read about um, pr private institutions as well as government institutions uh, subject to ransomware, uh, stealing sensitive data, uh, you know, a, a threat to uh, identity theft. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we could uh, keep what we have safe before we reach out. But uh, that's not going to happen. There are people who are starving for broadband, so we're going to do both simultaneously. You're only a, a few weeks in, but given uh, kind of your limited time to have explored these issues, do you have a sense yet of some of the main gaps or challenges that the state faces when it comes to cybersecurity? Yes, and some of those are being addressed already. Uh, I'm very fortunate in that uh, we, you know, we, we have both the director of, of broadband and uh, the individual who uh, has been helping us. And we, we just named a director, uh, but the one who had been helping us will be staying with us. He's done this before for other states. Uh, happy to have him and for Cyber, we're very fortunate to have a very skilled, knowledgeable individual who just happened to have been sitting in my chair uh, uh, as the acting state CIO and is quite familiar with uh, the issues uh, surrounding that. And he has been able to issue some directives. For example, uh, he got a hard lesson in uh, just how important dual factor authentication can, uh, you know, it's inconvenient, but uh, how much protection that one step can afford, uh, you know, any organization. And so he told, you know, all the agencies uh, we're going to do this. So, and almost all of the agencies have, hmm. and uh, there are uh, like four, four stragglers and two of them are uh, coming on board. Now they've committed, they're in progress and two more are, um, I think they've seen the light and uh, they're going to protect uh, their customers' identities 
They're going to protect sensitive data, and they're going to make sure their employees can continue to do their public work uh, through the state systems. Right. It sounds like there was a story there. Is there is that anything you can share? We had we had a county uh, who suffered, you know, a ransomware attack, and it was it was harsh, and uh, they basically quit doing, you know, all their work, all the progress that they were going to make to uh, stop and address that. Fortunately for them, they. Uh, did have uh, appropriate backups and they were able to apply those. You know, uh, our federal partners helped them out in in this regard and they were able to, uh, you know, reset the clock and and bring themselves back up to speed. A lot of double data entry, you know, coming back up and uh, they're pretty much uh, running well right now. But uh, what a scare. I mean, it could have been anyone. Yeah. All right. Um, There are some other priorities on that list. We don't have to talk about all of them or even any of them, but I just wanted to give you a chance to mention anything else that you uh, are especially interested in or that you is like a, um, you know, uh, a priority for you. Well, I am, uh, yes, we have a lot of, you know, I hesitate to call them priorities. And the, the reason I hesitate is not because they aren't, but uh, because I want a very clear message to uh, all those people that uh, I support that we just have a few priorities. And I want to make sure that these are addressed well. And you've already mentioned two of them. I thought the list should be no longer than three. And that third one is to make our uh, Department of Information Technology more customer centric. I wanna be responsive to what our customers need and our our customers want. And that includes uh, the CIOs of our state agencies and not all our agencies have CIOs Uh, We also have boards and commissions uh, who are very invested in information technology. We want to include them. I want to know what they need. Uh, I want them driving us, telling us what uh, we need to do for them. Uh, There's also the legislature. You know, they've got, they are an important customer of ours. We want to uh, help them out. Uh, in addition to, of course, our, our governor's office, you know, making sure that uh, they've got what they need to uh, be effective and, and to address some emergencies we've had here, uh, not the least of which has been our uh, high, our largest recorded forest fire uh, here, you know, recently. And uh, finally, you know, the, uh, uh, at the root of it all is our taxpayers, our, our constituents, uh, even people who don't pay taxes, uh, you know, ma- making sure that the public uh, has what they need, both in terms of, you know, services from 
uh, our government agency, you know, make sure that we're available, that we've got the systems, that we're working efficiently to uh, get them what they need, what they expect, uh, and, you know, to, to be there for them and to listen to them as well. Peter Mantos, Chief Information Officer for the state of New Mexico. You can read more about him and his work in the state at statescoop.com and in today's show notes. New Jersey is adopting a data-centric approach to online content strategy. The state's Office of Innovation is using analytics information to proactively determine what information needs to be shared, how it's organized, and where it's featured. The approach started with the state's business information hub and, of course, its COVID-19 site. Kai Feeder, the Innovation Office's Chief of Staff, tells State Soup's Colin Wood how it works. I think it's important to first take a step back and understand that our use of qualitative and quantitative data to drive content development decisions and strategy, it's an extension of our user-centered approach to problem solving. Uh, for all the projects that the Office of Innovation takes on, um, initiatives, products, etc., we put the user and her needs at the center of our efforts. So when it comes to content development, we bring this approach to life by tapping into the rich data and insights that are generated uh, from our activities, such as product usage and traffic data, um, data that's generated through customer service channels like live chat um, and uh, call centers, uh, and also ongoing user research where we're talking one-on-one with users about the product that they're, they're engaging with and that we're creating for them. Um, so you know, when we really kind of bring this to life, uh, whether we're building something initially or alternatively operating an existing tool and looking to constantly iterative, uh, constantly and iteratively improve it, uh, what we're looking for is what's the data telling us that the user wants, needs, or is seeking out? Um, and then how do we tap that data uh, to make it the best product as possible um, for the user uh, and at the end of the day, deliver uh, better policies, programs, and services uh, to New Jerseyans and the uh, um, businesses and institutions of the state? Hmm, right. Well, the thing that attracted me to this was that it's something that it seems like it should be trivial, but as Eugene pointed out in the contributed piece that we ran, um, it can be very important for a variety of reasons, which I'm sure we'll kind of get into. Um, I think maybe a good way of illustrating that, can you provide uh, an example or two of how research has informed some of the content that people can find today on business.nj.gov and the, your, um, the state's COVID information hub? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it starts with the fact that, you know, as government, we inherently, whether purposely or, or not purposely, uh, have a ton of data at our disposal. And oftentimes we're not leveraging it to the full extent that we can. Um, one example is leveraging search, ba- uh, search data to better understand what users are seeking out. Um, for example, on uh, both the COVID Info Hub and business.nj.gov, uh, we're regularly monitoring what users are searching for on the site and then using that information to identify what new content needs to be developed, what existing content needs to be updated or streamlined or made more clear, um, and also whether existing co- uh, content is appropriate place for in a, from a design perspective. Are people able to find what it is you're, uh, they're, they're looking for um, based on the site's design? And I know we're going to touch on design a little bit later, but um, one really quick example is um, uh, uh, during the height of the pandemic, uh, the state of New Jersey introduced a series of policies that impacted domestic interstate travel, um, uh, whether as you had to register if you were flying into New Jersey um, uh, or optionally register, et cetera. Um, and so we had a, a bunch of content that was developed to help answer questions about domestic travel to New Jersey from another state. Um, 
what we noticed though is that there was a significant uptick in people looking for uh, information around international travel policies. Now, from a government perspective, we were thinking, hey, well, this is something that's it's a CDC policy. The state of New Jersey can't regulate international travel into its boundaries. Um, but it was something that our users were actively looking for. So we uh, um, uh, uh, tapped the CDC's information and quickly developed content uh, that could address those questions um, uh, so that people could find everything that they were looking for about travel as a whole on the COVID info hub. Um, another example, lost vaccination cards. Um, we worked uh, across the Department of Health and the Office of Information Technology uh, to stand up a lot of infrastructure around um, getting the vaccine, getting shots into arms and helping people identify where they could get shots, um, uh, get, get vaccinated. Um, and sure enough, you know, within a week or two, you start seeing an uptick around, well, what do I do if I've lost my vaccination card? So again, looking at the data of what people are searching for in your product uh, to then identify what the type of content that you need to develop um, yeah. is one 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 quick example. Yeah, um, that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing that would be hard to predict. I mean, maybe if someone was very thoughtful and thinking about, okay, we're distributing these cards, people are probably going to lose them. But that's the kind of thing that just I imagine just kind of crops up and you might only notice if you're paying attention to this data. Well, and you have to be you have to be ready to adapt, right? I think that part of this is that um, you know when we had first launched the COVID Info Hub, instead of spending months and months and months during the height of a pandemic, right, an emergency response, trying to plan out a, a, a new website, we stood it up in five days. And the reason, one of the reasons, is that we needed something that was central, that was coordinated, a single one-stop shop for people to go to get information. But what we traded off by saying, we're going to launch a site in five days, but it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to have every piece of information that everyone's looking for, because we knew that we could rely on what users were looking for in the data that they were generating as a result to guide us down that path. So for example, um, when the site first launched, it was very search centric. The search bar at the top of the, uh, the page was front and center. And uh, what we started doing was one, again, tapping the search data, figure out what people were searching for. And, it, and when it didn't return a, a positive result in the search responses, we knew one, they needed, we needed to uh, generate some content um, uh, to address the question that they, were, uh, that they were searching for. The second piece is we actually embedded a form on the page where it literally said, couldn't find what you're looking for, let us know. That form resulted in thousands of submissions, which were then sorted through, analyzed, categorized, and then operationalized into a content development queue, which was then rapidly executed. So it really gave us a roadmap to chart out what it is we needed to do to actually build the plane while we were flying it. So to say, hmm. right. Well, it's a uh, departure from how a lot how things are done in a lot of places. Although these kinds of uh, you know design thinking is catching on in in certain corners of government. Um, so, in case we haven't made it kind of clear already why this way of doing things is valuable, why do you think it's important for uh, you know? a state government to be responsive in this way when it comes to both content and design? I think first and foremost, Colin, you know, the residents, businesses and institutions that government exists to serve deserve a best in class experience, uh, an experience that's intuitive and responsive to their needs um, and an experience that's designed around them, not an experience that's necessarily designed around the structure or organization of government and bureaucracy. Um, and when you really distill kind of our, our data-driven content approach and just the general user-centered approach, 
um, uh, uh, to, to sharing information, right? And uh, it's about communicating and interacting effectively with residents. And I think that w- when, we, when we strengthen government's ability to communicate, we strengthen our ability to actually implement the policies, programs, services, and products that we as government to create to serve our constituents and positively impact their lives. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's about creating a better experience for the resident and uh, strengthening our ability to, to implement the policies that uh, we as government create. Right. Well, before we start recording, uh, you mentioned that you have a, a call to action that you want to put out there. So uh, the floor is yours. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to highlight, you know, we're always looking for uh, ways to share our approaches with others, but just as importantly, learn from our other colleagues in government about how they're solving problems similar to uh, what we're doing. So I would say that um, if anything I, you know, I've talked about here today is of interest or you have different approaches or thoughts or different uh, uh, creative ways of solving similar problems uh, that you might have faced as a, a, a civic technologist, uh, please do reach out to us. You can email us at team. T-E-A-M at innovation.nj.gov. Kai Feeder, the Chief of Staff for the New Jersey Office of Innovation. You can read an op-ed from the New Jersey Office of Innovation's Eugene Chow on data-driven content strategy at statescoop.com and in today's show notes. The Priorities Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't already, please leave a review or a rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that more people will find the show. This podcast is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped to put it together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. Thanks for listening.